Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 154, Mormons Seen the Man Behind the Curtain, Part 2. Part 1, The Whistleblower. In this segment, I'm going to talk about a book entitled An Insider's View of Mormon Origins, which is authored by Mr. Grant Palmer. I've run across Mr. Palmer in a number of interviews and podcasts. He's all over YouTube. He's given public talks. He's published things in addition to this book on this subject. He's obviously a remarkable and courageous person. When he published this book, he was a Mormon in good standing. The back cover says that he has an MA in American history from Brigham Young. He tells us in the preface that for 34 years, he was an institute director for CES, the church educational system of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The book cover says that in his local LDS ward, he is the high priest group instructor. He'd basically retired from these jobs, but this is an insider's insider a lover of history who had spent his life instructing Mormons about Mormonism. And it wasn't hard doing this to get curious about Mormon origins and the actual life of Joseph Smith. Of course, Mormons, for theological reasons, are interested in genealogy, and they've been good record keepers. Mr. Palmer says in his preface that scholars, quote, have published, critiqued, and reevaluated a veritable mountain of evidence too much of this escapes the view of the rank and file in the church, end quote. Well, not anymore. Things have changed since this book came out in 2002. Not only is he an outsider, but he explains fairly carefully that his intent is positive. He says in his preface, quote, Lest there be any question, let me say that my intent is to increase faith, not to diminish it. Still, faith needs to be built on truth what is, in fact, true and believable. After that comes the great leap. End quote. In the rest of this segment, I'm going to give you a little overview of the contents of this book, which, of course, I think you should read if you're at all interested in Mormon history. Chapter 1 is called Joseph Smith as Translator slash Revelator. Where does the Book of Mormon come from? The short version is that Smith claims that he translated the Book of Mormon into English from some plates that he dug out from under the ground that were shown to him by an angel in western New York State. These are supposed to be ancient plates. And yet, as Palmer points out, it wasn't really what we would normally call a translation. What he actually did was put what he thought was a magic stone into a top hat stuck his face in the top hat, and then claimed that the words would appear to him, which he would then read out, and the person helping him would write them down. And also, usually there would be a curtain separating Smith with his hat and the stone from the person transcribing, from the person writing down what became the Book of Mormon. Where were the metal plates all this time? Well, they were in a box, is the story. They weren't being used. Palmer also gives you a short account of the episode I mentioned in the last episode where one doubtful person stole 116 pages of the manuscript and waited to see if this alleged prophet would be able to magically retranslate it again. We know this happened even from the preface of the 1830 Book of Mormon. Instead of doing that, Smith said that he translated another set of plates instead. He simply didn't even try to meet the challenge. The obvious reason, of course, is that he couldn't. Never mind the outlandishness of this story about finding buried ancient plates with a heretofore unheard of language, reformed Egyptian on them, consisting of what sort of a new Bible. Never mind the contents of the story. Joseph Smith was known to be an untrustworthy character. Grant says this, quote, the question is whether or not Joseph could indeed read text from a stone, or whether the stone was a device to enhance concentration or a prop for the benefit of onlookers. Previously, he was employed as a scryer for treasure hunters and was brought to court three times for stone gazing. Let me pause here. 
He's claiming that he could find treasure buried under the ground using a stone or some kind of magical device. And people would hire him to guide them, and they would dig holes and never find anything. So that's what he's talking about. Back to Palmer, quote, The fact that he and his colleagues never obtained any riches by this method may argue against the efficacy of the endeavor. Of interest is the testimony given in the July 1830 trial heard before Justice Joseph Chamberlain of Bainbridge, New York. The proceedings were reported by A.W. Benton, a young medical doctor who lived in South Bainbridge. And then he quotes this Benton, quote, During the trial, it was shown that the Book of Mormon was brought to light by the same magic power by which he, Joseph, pretended to tell fortunes, discover hidden treasures, etc., Addison Austin was next called upon, who testified that he was with Smith alone, and that Austin asked Smith to tell him honestly whether he could see this money or not. Smith hesitated some time, but finally replied, To be candid between you and me, I cannot, any more than you or anybody else, but any way to get a living. End quote. Grant continues, the same information was also conveyed under oath at Joseph's second July 1830 trial in front of Justice Joel K. Noble of Colesville, New York. Noble wrote, quote, Joseph was asked by witness, Austin, if he could see or tell more than others. Joseph said he could not, and says, Anything for a living, I now and then get a shilling. End quote. Isaac Hale, Alva Hale, and Peter Ingersoll each signed affidavits stating that Joseph said the same to them. End quote. This is really damning evidence. The guy was a liar. He admitted that he was a liar, a trickster, a fraudster. This is important to know. Compare it with the case of the founder of Scientology, L. Ron Hubbard. He is reported to have said to more than one person something to the effect of, the way to really hit it big in this day and age is to start a religion. He said this, of course, while he was a science fiction writer and then an author of sort of a kooky pop psychology book. Of course, he went on to found a religion. This is evidence that he knew what he was doing. Grant, right on page 8 in his book, presents evidence that Joseph Smith knew what he was doing, at least when he was lying about his treasure-hunting abilities. Another obvious thing to wonder about is, why the curtain? Palmer says, quote, Since the gold plates were not used during the translation, why the curtain? No 19th century church member mentions that Joseph used notes or books, but scholars have determined that he consulted an open Bible, specifically a printing of the King James translation dating from 1769 or later, including its errors. End quote. Why have they determined that? Well, as is well known, the Book of Mormon, the original edition, contained errors from the 1769 or later edition of the King James Bible. Speaking of the Bible, Palmer goes on to describe that between 1830 and 1833, this would-be prophet produced what's called the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible. He made most of his changes to Genesis and to Matthew, and Palmer observes that, quote, None of the significant additions or deletions have been supported by the numerous Old and New Testament manuscript finds since 1833. End quote. If indeed he was miraculously restoring the true text, then you'd expect it to be confirmed at least a few times by new findings. Of course it hasn't. He also in this chapter discusses the well-known Book of Abraham fiasco, the Book of Abraham is found in the Mormon scripture called The Pearl of Great Price, which is a book in addition to the Book of Mormon. And Joseph Smith presented an ancient Egyptian papyrus, which he says is part of what he had translated as the Book of Abraham. Palmer says, quote, Unfortunately, his interpretations have been shown by Egyptologists today to be a misreading of the papyri. End quote. He then investigates some works that Joseph Smith could have been familiar with that would have inspired some of the things that he says about the universe in this book of Abraham. He's looking for literary sources, and he finds some pretty interesting stuff. Another wild episode. In 1843, some people suddenly went public that they had found six, quote, brass plates underground near a place called Kinderhook, Illinois. These are called the Kinderhook Plates. And they brought them to Joseph Smith, who promptly announced that he could translate a portion of them. And according to one witness, Smith said, quote, 
They contain the history of the person with whom they were found, and he was a descendant of Ham through the loins of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and that he received his kingdom from the ruler of heaven and earth. End quote. Palmer notes that Joseph Smith thought enough of the history of this Jaredite descendant of Ham to direct LDS member Reuben Headlock to make woodcuts of the plates for future publication. Then in the book, on page 32, you can see an image of these woodcuts as published in some early Mormon sources. But starting around 1855, the whole thing unraveled. One person that helped to dig up the plates confessed the whole scheme, that he and a couple of conspirators had covered them with little mysterious characters by engraving them with nitric acid, and they had buried them the night before. In 1879, another participant confessed that the whole thing was a hoax, and he explained further how they had produced the plates. But it gets better. In 1842, a visiting minister from England decided to test Joseph Smith, and he did it by showing him an ancient Greek Psalter to see if he could read it or translate it. Palmer says that this minister, quote, Caswell, who probably exaggerates Joseph's frontier grammar and idiom, said, quote, he asked me if I had any idea of its meaning. I replied that I believed it to be a Greek Psalter, but that I should like to hear his opinion. No, he said, it ain't Greek at all, except perhaps a few words. This book is very valuable. It is a dictionary of Egyptian hieroglyphics. Pointing to the capital letters at the commencement of each verse, he said, Them figures is Egyptian hieroglyphics, and them which follows is the interpretation of the hieroglyphics written in the Reformed Egyptian. Them characters is like the letters that was engraven on the golden plates. End quote. The doctor, needless to say, was not impressed. Palmer continues that, quote, Caswell told this incident to Dr. Willard Richards, a Mormon apostle, to which, quote, the Mormon doctor said, Sometimes Mr. Smith speaks as a prophet, and sometimes as a mere man. If he gave a wrong opinion respecting the book, he spoke as a mere man. I said, Whether he spoke as a prophet or as a mere man, he has committed himself, for what he has said is not true. But if he spoke as a prophet, therefore, he is a false prophet. If he spoke as a mere man, he cannot be trusted, for he spoke positively and like an oracle respecting that of which he knew nothing. End quote. Palmer continues, While it is true that we have only Caswell's view of this incident, it is consistent with Joseph's pattern of rather quickly determining the value and content of unknown documents that were presented to him. My conclusion is, is that a large body of evidence demonstrates that Joseph mistranslated a number of documents. I know of no substantial evidence to support his claim to have ever literally translated any document, leaving me to appreciate his writings at face value rather than because of their antiquity. With this perspective, when I read the Book of Mormon or Pearl of Great Price, I harbor the suspicion that they represent a 19th century encounter with God rather than an ancient epic. End quote. Encounter with God. Hmm. Well, that's about as positive a take as you could have on this whole incident. Personally, I wouldn't expect a 19th century encounter with God to result in just patent lying or pitiful self-delusion. Chapter 2 is called The Authorship of the Book of Mormon, and I'll be a lot quicker with it. Mormons have tended to emphasize that Joseph Smith was this uneducated teenager when the Book of Mormon came out, and how could a young, uneducated boy like that produce such a thing? Well, Palmer shows that he was pretty well self-educated, that he had read a fair bit, and he goes digging around and finds some literary sources that may have inspired some of the ideas in the Book of Mormon. He says, quote, the evidence indicates that the Book of Mormon is in fact an amalgamation of ideas that were inspired by Joseph's own environment, new, and themes from the Bible, old. End quote. In the end, our historian concludes that Joseph Smith very well may have come up with this whole book over the course of about three years. Chapter 3 is called The Bible in the Book of Mormon. 
This, I think, is pretty well encapsulated in a quote at the start of the chapter from Christer Stendhal, who was dean of Harvard Divinity School. This is from an essay published in 1978. Stendhal says, quote, The biblical material behind the Book of Mormon strikes me as being in the form of the King James Version. I have applied standard methods of historical critics, redaction criticism, and genre criticism. From such perspectives, it seems very clear that the Book of Mormon belongs to and shows many of the typical signs of the Targums, interpretations or paraphrasings, and the pseudepigraphic recasting of biblical material. The Targumic tendencies are those of clarifying and actualizing translations, usually by expansion and more specific application to the need and situation of the community. The pseudepigraphic, both apocalyptic and didactic, tend to fill out the gaps in our knowledge about sacred events, truths, and predictions. It's obvious to me that the Book of Mormon stands within both of these traditions if considered as a phenomenon of religious texts. End quote. In everyday English, in the Book of Mormon, the author is riffing on biblical themes and expanding on biblical stories and ideas in a way that seemed suitable to him at the time. Palmer goes on to compare miracles and the role they play in the biblical books versus the Book of Mormon, the account of Christ's teachings, the prophecies, the idea of a journey to a promised land, and so on. Chapter 4 is called Evangelical Protestantism in the Book of Mormon. An early reviewer in 1831 wrote that the author of the Book of Mormon was, quote, skilled in the controversies of New York, end quote. This area in New York had been called the Burnt Over District for all the revival activity that had gone on there. All of the camp meetings, the circuit preachers that had gone through there. Another early reviewer, writing for a publication called Unitarian in 1834, says, according to Palmer, that the Book of Mormon reflects, quote, the popular Western New York prejudices against fine clothing, a paid regular ministry, and the institution of masonry, Another early reviewer noted that the book seemed to reflect an evangelical camp meeting style of preaching, their type of emphasis on conversion, and certain revivalist terminology, and even the denunciation of deists, Unitarians, Universalists, and agnostics. Palmer remarks that while, quote, these elements formed a pattern that was typical in Joseph Smith's environment, one would not expect to find them packaged together in the discourses and experiences of ancient Americans. It's more believable that the Protestant Reformation, including its evolving doctrines and practices down to Joseph Smith's era, influenced these sections of the Book of Mormon. End quote. He also mentions the developing view of God. Palmer says, quote, The LDS Church today teaches that God the Father and Jesus Christ are two separate and distinct beings, but the Book of Mormon does not. End quote. Then he quotes 2 Nephi 31.21, which says, quote, the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, which is one God, end quote. In other words, what he's saying is that at one stage, Joseph Smith was a Trinitarian, and at a later stage, he was not a Trinitarian. In the rest of the chapter, Palmer does a nice job following up on these insights that were even in the earliest reviews of the book. Chapter 5 is called Moroni and the Golden Pot, in this chapter, Palmer digs for sources relating to the stories about Joseph Smith's first spiritual encounter with God. Palmer discusses a short story entitled The Golden Pot, featuring a main character named Anselmus, who is a young theology student. This was published in German in 1814 by an author named Hoffman, and it came to America in 1827. Palmer finds a number of parallels in the plots between this story of this supernatural experience by Anselmus and the experiences reported by Joseph Smith. As he's comparing both stories, his headings are as follows. First, he meditates upon his foibles. He receives a shock, a vision of angels, and a message. He is called to translate ancient records. The next morning, he walks to the appointed place. He thinks about riches. He encounters an evil force. The messenger harms him. He receives a brief sketch of the ancients. The messenger is a descendant of his people's founders. The messenger is his people's last archivist. In the case of Joseph Smith, this was the angel Moroni. Again, Palmer's headings continue. The messenger is a spirit prince. He sits under a tree by a green sward. The message is repeated and expanded. He is chastised for disobedience. 
He has to wait one year. He will be accompanied by a woman. The door opens automatically. He tours the vast chambers. He sees illuminated treasures. He views Egyptian artifacts. He encounters the Seeric device. The special treasures are kept separate from the library. He describes the general library. He enters a period of instruction. He understands the higher purpose of his work. The fall equinox has significance. His companion prays against the howling spirits. He is wounded in a fight with the spirits. Midnight to dawn on the equinox. He receives the ancestral records on the equinox. He describes the records. The characters are in an unknown language. He translates by inspiration. He produces a most correct book. So this book that came to America in 1827 seems to have quite a lot of structural elements in common with the accounts that Joseph Smith is telling people between 1827 and 1830. Of course, the stories are not exactly the same, and he admits this. Later versions get rid of some of the magical elements. Still, it's an intriguing comparison. Not an open and shut case, and not an allegation of plagiarism, but just a plausible hypothesis about what could have been an inspiration for what Smith was telling people. Chapter 6 is entitled, Witnesses to the Golden Plates. In this chapter, he discusses the 11 men who swore that they saw and handled the golden plates that Smith said that he had recovered. On the face of it, this is really impressive. But Palmer says, quote, We tend to read into their testimonies a rationalist perspective rather than a 19th century magical mindset. They believed in what has been called second sight. Traditionally, this included the ability to see spirits and their dwelling places within the local hills and elsewhere. End quote. He talks about some of their belief in seer stones and divining rods and things like this, and just that people generally in this time and place were a bit superstitious about human abilities to supernaturally detect things. The thing is that later, Martin Harris confessed that he hadn't seen the plates with his physical eyes and that neither had the others. There's more to the story than this. A man named Stephen Burnett, who was a high priest in the church, wrote a letter in 1838, three weeks after talking with Harris. He says, quote, I have reflected long and deliberately upon the history of this church and weighed the evidence for and against it, loath to give it up, but when I came to hear Martin Harris state in public that he never saw the plates with his natural eyes, only in vision or imagination, neither Oliver nor David, and also that the eight witnesses never saw them and hesitated to sign that instrument for that very reason, but were persuaded to do it, the last pedestal gave way. In my view, our foundations was sapped, and the entire superstructure fell in a heap of ruins." He then mentions exiting the church. He and some others rendered this negative judgment in conversation with Martin Harris, and he continues, After we were done speaking, Martin Harris arose and said he was sorry for any man who rejected the Book of Mormon, for he knew it was true. He said he had hefted the plates repeatedly in a box with only a tablecloth or handkerchief over them, but he never saw them only as he saw a city through a mountain. And he said that he never should have told that the testimony of the eight was false if it had not been picked out of him, but should have let it pass as it was. End quote. Honestly, Martin Harris is not the brightest character. And apparently he wasn't very hard to fool. Because Joseph Smith wasn't the only prophet who was able to produce 11 signatories who said that he had been given some metal plates. When Joseph Smith died in 1844, there was somebody who had designs on being the successor to Joseph Smith. His name was James Strang. In 1845, he declared that he'd been visited by an angel, that he'd received the Urim and Thummim, which showed the location of some record of ancient people. He and some others claimed that they had unearthed some plates covered with, quote, characters, but in a language of which we have no knowledge, end quote. Lo and behold, Strang quote, translated these, he claims, which ended up in a book called Book of the Law of the Lord. Some of the Mormons followed him. Palmer sums up this interesting episode as follows, quote, in conclusion, all of the living signatories to the Book of Mormon, except possibly Cowdery, accepted Strang's leadership, angelic call, 
metal plates, and his translation of these plates as authentic. This replication of an earlier pattern of belief confirms that it must have been relatively easy for the witnesses to accept Joseph's golden plates as an ancient record. Appreciating their mindset helps us understand Mormon origins in their terms. End quote. Chapter 7 is called Priesthood Restoration. Let it suffice to say that that's a lot more complicated than is normally taught to Mormons. Chapter 8 is called The First Vision. Palmer says, quote, As with the priesthood restoration accounts, current LDS interpretations of Joseph's first vision simplify and retrofit later accounts to provide a seemingly authoritative, unambiguous recital. End quote. In sum, Palmer says that the first vision narratives that Joseph Smith put on were expanded and became more miraculous from the earlier to later versions. In his conclusion, Palmer reiterates that he's not out to bury Mormonism. He says, quote, I cherish Joseph Smith's teachings on many topics, but when it comes to the founding events, I wonder if they are trustworthy as history. The issue of his credibility in differentiating between history and allegory initially filled me with a sense of loss. But I realized that the focus of my worship as a Mormon is Jesus Christ. As I learn more about our history, I arrive at a greater commitment to Christ's teachings. As Joseph Smith himself explained in 1838, quote, the fundamental principles of our religion is the testimony of the apostles and prophets concerning Jesus Christ, that he died, was buried, and rose again the third day, and ascended up to heaven, and all other things are only appendages to these which pertain to our religion. End quote. Palmer continues, I have followed this encapsulation and pursued what might be considered to be a more practical approach to our religion, an emphasis on the character of Jesus Christ and his promises. End quote. He talks a little bit about Jesus' teachings in the gospel and how they're meaningful to him and his work. Then he continues, As a fourth-generation Latter-day Saint with children and grandchildren in the fifth and sixth generations, I am proud of my heritage and have a mixture of confidence in and anxiety for the future. End quote. He then compares the church to the Seventh-day Adventists, who in the 80s discovered that over 80% of their founder, Ellen G. White's revelations, were just plagiarized from existing 18th century sources. Grant says, quote, The Adventist leadership has responded by making the church more Christ-centered. More recently, the Community of Christ, that is, RLDS, what used to be called the Reformed Latter-day Saints, went through a similar process. Today, anyone willing to covenant with Christ is invited to join either church and partake of the sacrament with them, regardless of their belief in the claims of their founding prophet. As Latter-day Saints, our religious faith should be based and evaluated by how our spiritual and moral lives are centered in Jesus Christ, rather than in Joseph Smith's largely rewritten, materialistic, idealized, and controversial accounts of the church's founding. I hope that this study contributes in some way toward that end. End quote. Grant Palmer did pay a sort of price for his book. In 2004, he was disfellowshipped from the church, and in 2010, he resigned his membership. As far as I know, he remains active in investigating issues in early Mormon history, and as far as I know, he still believes in God and in Jesus. When we come back, a Dear John letter. April 2013, a young Mormon named Jeremy Runnels published what he called a letter to a CES director. This was essentially his goodbye to Mormonism. Like a lot of young Mormons, he served time as a missionary. Like a lot of young Mormons, he ran into information arguing that Joseph Smith was a fraudster and a bad guy. Runnels' pious Mormon grandfather asked him if he would at least talk to this church educational system director. And instead of talking to him, he wrote him a long open letter, which has now been viewed millions of times on the internet and translated into several languages. In this segment, I'm going to just briefly highlight some of the interesting contents of it. 
Of course, there's a link on the blog post for this episode where you can view and download this whole document and read it for yourself. Yet again, I found out about this source through John DeLynn's excellent podcast called Mormon Stories. He has an interview with Mr. Runnels there, which is very interesting. And again, I've got a link for you on the blog post if you're interested. He begins by talking about the weird appearance of passages from the King James translation of the Bible in the Book of Mormon, which is supposedly an ancient document and supposedly miraculously translated somehow by God's power, mediated through a seer stone, of course. He also says, quote, The Book of Mormon includes mistranslated biblical passages that were later changed in Joseph Smith's translation of the Bible. These Book of Mormon verses should match the inspired JST version instead of the incorrect KJV version that Joseph later fixed. End quote. And then he gives examples. He talks about the DNA analysis that's been done on Native American people and how this contradicts the Book of Mormon's claims that these are the descendants of Hebrews. He talks about the anachronisms there. Quote, Horses, cattle, oxen, sheep, swine, goats, elephants, wheels, chariots, wheat, silk, steel, and iron did not exist in pre-Columbian America during the Book of Mormon times. Why are these things mentioned in the Book of Mormon as being made available in the Americas between 2200 B.C. and 421 A.D.? End quote. As to the geography of the Book of Mormon, he says, quote, Many Book of Mormon names and places are strikingly similar to many local names and places of the region Joseph Smith lived. End quote. He means in upstate New York and in parts of Pennsylvania. Here, a picture is worth a thousand words. You'll have to see how he's taken a map of the Great Lakes and New York and Pennsylvania and overlaid it with names and place names that are in the Book of Mormon. It's on page nine with the table of place names on page 10. Like many critics of the Book of Mormon, he compares its plot elements to a novel published in Vermont called View of the Hebrews. He's got those in a table for you. And he digs around for some more literary sources. Starting on page 20, he talks about the way the Book of Mormon came to be, and he reproduces some official church illustrations that purport to show the translation and contrast them with the actual 19th century descriptions of what happened. He says, quote, Unlike the story I've been taught in Sunday school, priesthood, general conferences, seminary, EFY, ensigns, church history tour, missionary training center, and BYU, Joseph Smith used a rock and a hat for translating the Book of Mormon. In other words, he used the same, quote, Ouija board that he used in his day's treasure hunting, where he would put a rock or a peepstone in his hat and put his face in the hat to tell his customers the location of buried treasure. And then he links you a bunch of authoritative sources. Starting on page 22, he plunges into the similarities and differences between the four different accounts that Joseph Smith gave of his first vision. And he's got it graphically illustrated for you what the differences are. Then the embarrassingly obvious Book of Abraham fraud laid out for you very neatly with great illustrations in the space of six pages. And then starting on page 31, some concerns about Joseph Smith's polygamy and, as he describes, polyandry. You see, to call Joseph Smith a polygamist is kind of to disrespect polygamists. Real polygamy is a man with several wives where it's all done in public, it's all above board, they live together, generally under one roof, the wives are exclusive to the one husband, the one husband is exclusive to just the set of the wives. Not the best arrangement, in my opinion, but not the absolute worst. It has worked. You see it occurring in ancient times in the Bible. That's not exactly what Joseph Smith was doing. Runnels summarizes the evidence like this, quote, Joseph Smith was married to at least 34 women. Polyandry. Of those 34 women, 11 of them were married women of other living men, among them being Apostle Orson Hyde, who was sent on his mission to dedicate Israel when Joseph secretly married his wife, Marinda Hyde. Church historian Elder Marlon K. Jensen and unofficial apologists like Fair Mormon do not dispute the polyandry. The church now admits the polyandry in its October 2014 Plural Marriage in Kirtland and Nauvoo Essay. Out of the 34 women, seven of them were teenage girls as young as 14 years old. Joseph was 37 years old when he married 14-year-old Helen Mark Kimball, 23 years his junior. Even by 19th century standards, this was shocking. 
Reynolds continues, quote, Some of the marriages to these women included promises by Joseph of eternal life to the girls and their families, threats of loss of salvation, and threats that he, Joseph, was going to be slain by an angel with a drawn sword if the girls don't marry him. I have a problem with this. This is Warren Jeff's territory. This is not the Joseph Smith I grew up learning about in the church and having a testimony of. This is not the Joseph Smith that I sang praise to the man to or taught others about two years in the mission field. End quote. He goes on to mention Smith's public lies about engaging in these, quote, celestial marriages. He mentions that a couple of them were to young girls living in his house as foster daughters. He mentions the inconsistency of Joseph Smith's actions with some divine revelations that he had already given. About Smith's lies, Reynolds says, quote, Consider the following denial made by Joseph Smith to Latter-day Saints in Nauvoo in May 1844, a month before his death. Quote, what a thing it is for a man to be accused of committing adultery and having seven wives when I can only find one. I am the same man and as innocent as I was 14 years ago, and I can prove them all perjurers. End quote. Runnels continues, It is a matter of historical fact that Joseph had secretly taken over 30 plural wives by May 1844 when he made the above denial that he was ever a polygamist. End quote. He says that the evidence shows, quote, that Joseph Smith's pattern of behavior or modus operandi for a period of at least 10 years of his adult life was to keep secrets, be deceptive, and be dishonest, both privately and publicly, end quote. He talks about the fact that polygamy is still on the books and that the second leader of Mormonism, Brigham Young, said, quote, the only men who become gods, even the sons of God, are those who enter into polygamy. End quote. Of course, polygamy is disavowed by the current leadership of the LDS Church in Utah. Reynolds comments, quote, Polygamy is doctrinal. Polygamy is not doctrinal. Yesterday's doctrine is today's false doctrine. Yesterday's prophets are today's heretics. End quote. He goes on to talk about how black people could not hold their priesthood and yet this was overturned in more recent times. Talks about the kinderhook plates that we mentioned before. And apparently these were being defended as genuine discoveries from the ancient world until the year 1980, when physical investigation proved that it was a 19th century creation. In other words, they could tell what methods were used to engrave the letters on the little plates, and they required chemicals from modern times. About the Mormon emphasis on having a testimony, a subjective feeling that the whole thing is right, Reynolds says, quote, As a believing Mormon, I saw a testimony as more than just spiritual experiences and feelings. I saw that we had evidence and logic on our side based on the correlated narrative I was fed by the church about its origins. I lost this confidence at 31 years old when I discovered that the gap between what the church teaches about its origins versus what the primary historical documents actually show happened, what history shows what happened, what science shows what happened, couldn't be farther apart. End quote. He talks about discrepancies in the sources about the restoration of the priesthood that Grant Palmer also discusses. He talks about the magical worldview of Joseph Smith and the people that he's calling as witnesses to his claims. About Martin Harris, we mentioned before, he says, quote, Before Harris became a Mormon, he had already changed his religion at least five times. After Joseph's death, Harris continued this earlier pattern by joining and leaving five more different sects, including James Strang, whom Harris went on a mission to England for, other Mormon offshoots, and the Shakers. Not only did Harris join other religions, he testified and witnessed for them. It has been reported that Martin Harris, quote, declared repeatedly that he had as much evidence for a Shaker book he had as for the Book of Mormon, end quote. In addition to devotion to self-proclaimed prophet James Strang, Martin Harris was a follower to another self-proclaimed Mormon prophet by the name of Gladden Bishop. Like Strang, Bishop claimed to have plates, Urim and Thummim, and that he was receiving revelation from the Lord. Martin was one of Bishop's witnesses to his claims. If someone testified of some strange spiritual encounter he had, but also told you that he conversed with Jesus who took the form of a deer, 
saw the devil with his four feet and donkey head, chipped off a chunk of a stone box that would mysteriously move beneath the ground to avoid capture, interpreted simple things like a flickering of a candle as a sign of the devil, had a creature appearing on his chest that no one else could see. Would you believe his claims, or would you call the nearest mental hospital? With inconsistency, conflict of interest, magical thinking, and superstition like this, exactly what credibility does Martin Harris have, and why should I believe him? End quote. He comments on the strange connection between masonry and a lot of Mormon ritual and symbolism. Starting on page 67, he gives what he calls science concerns and questions. These are a laundry list of objections to claims in the Book of Mormon and in the Bible based on current science. So he questions the reality of the flood, the historical reality of Adam and Eve. How can Jonah and the whale story have happened? How can people turn into salt in Sodom and Gomorrah? This part isn't all that interesting, in that he just completely ignores any issues relating to evidence and miracles in particular. And does he sound a little bit mad? He is a little bit mad. Why shouldn't he be? He's been lied to. He's had a ton of information hidden from him for his whole life, and he had to dig it up on his own. Pages 69 and 70, he gives very standard objections. You know, how could a good God demand that the Canaanites be killed? How could he allow things like slavery, stoning children that disrespect their parents, and things like this? In the last 13 pages, he details what he calls the church's dishonesty and whitewashing over its history. He also mentions their general anti-intellectualism and their attempts to scare people into silence by suggesting that looking into these things can be spiritually harmful and put one in peril. In his conclusion, he starts off with a quotation from a previous president of the LDS Church who says, quote, Mormonism, as it is called, must stand or fall on the story of Joseph Smith. He was either a prophet of God, divinely called, properly appointed and commissioned, or he was one of the biggest frauds this world has ever seen. There is no middle ground. If Joseph was a deceiver who willfully attempted to mislead people, then he should be exposed, his claims should be refuted, and his doctrines shown to be false. End quote. Well, he has been exposed. Many of his claims have been decisively refuted, as well as you can refute any of these historical claims. And so some of his claims about himself, about his experiences, about these books that he produced, have been shown false. Can Mormonism continue now that it can't ignore the man behind the curtain? In days gone by, they could just hide information from people, and it worked well enough. It seems those days are over. There's just no avoiding this information. Runnell says, quote, The past year was the worst year of my life. I experienced a betrayal, loss, and sadness unlike anything I've ever known. Do what is right, let the consequences follow, now holds a completely different meaning for me. End quote. He doesn't talk explicitly about what his beliefs are now about religion. You have to feel really bad for the guy. It's clear enough that he's done with anything that might be considered a kind of Christianity. Lies have consequences. When the Trinity's podcast returns, lessons for non-Mormons. Insiders, Outsiders, and Lessons for Us All The ongoing saga of Mormonism is fascinating, and it's not clear how long Mormonism will last, or if it lasts, what shape it will take in the future. In this last segment of the episode, I'm going to talk about some lessons that the rest of us can draw from this whole episode. One lesson is that when an outsider is delivering a piece of criticism, it can be ignored pretty much forever, as long as you have a tight, socially coherent group. Critics of Mormonism could read the two sources that I've discussed in this episode and say, See, I told you so. And many, many, many points they did. 
They might have done it in all caps in some cases. They might have done it with an in-your-face attitude, ha, 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 but they did it, and other people did listen to them, and maybe they've earned a little bit of a right to gloat. But when insiders, people who wish no ill on Mormons, Mormonism, and the LDS Church, when those people started relaying some of the same information, all of a sudden now people are paying attention. The leadership of the LDS Church is not the only group of religious leaders that hides things from people. The wing of Christianity that I'm most familiar with, conservative American evangelicalism, I think habitually hides quite a lot from people. Just off the top of my head, they hide from people information relating to inerrancy and the authorship of biblical books. A lot of evangelicals since the 1970s have rallied around inerrancy as the true defining mark of an evangelical. And yet, most seminary professors either don't hold that view or hold a very convoluted and tricky version of that view. And people who are Christians, who are obviously believing Christians and show Christian lives and who have clearly a relationship with God through Jesus, a lot of other Christians roll their eyes at all this stuff about inerrancy. Why? Because of the type of things that textual scholars know, that people who work closely with the books of the Old and New Testament know, you won't hear about these things in a sermon or a Sunday school lesson. And if you only read evangelical commentaries and Bible study notes, you're only going to get the party line version of these things if they're mentioned at all. Nor will you hear about the history and development of the Trinity or the Incarnation. Now, these doctrines are extremely difficult, and I think not well understood even by most people who have been to seminary. But there are some people who understand the history of their development, the ins and outs of the different formulations of them, how they got to be a majority view. And again, these things are not taught to the laity. And if a Muslim comes along and says, how can Jesus be God, or how can God be three in one? Oh, well, <laughs> that's a Muslim. They don't know what they're talking about. They just don't get it. Oh, that person's just a Jehovah's Witness. They don't know what they're talking about. They don't get it. They're a bunch of brainwashed, mind-numbed robots just repeating stupid stuff that their cult leaders tell them. They're outsiders, and you don't need to listen to them. The history of it, the origin of these claims, their current-day debated interpretations, the many difficulties involved, their dubious basis in the Bible... You can hide these things from people. In ages past, it works pretty well. When people from within the tradition start to question them, it's going to be, I think, a different situation. These are people who do understand how insiders think. I'm thinking of people like Mr. Kermit Zarley, lifelong evangelical, did a serious study of the scriptures and concluded that in the scriptures, Jesus is not God. He's the human son of God. His book on this is called The Restitution of Jesus Christ, and it contains just a ridiculous amount of serious biblical scholarship. The things that he's saying are the things that scholars say, sometimes even evangelical ones, when they're not in defense mode. They'll go through the various stages. First, you ignore them, pretend they don't exist. Then you acknowledge them and say they're irrelevant, obviously misinformed, probably stupid, self-deluded, marginal, crackpots. Scholars, maybe, but not good ones. Uh, then you take a couple of cracks at them, half-hearted attempts at refutation. Then maybe, eventually, they get taken seriously. This can only be good, I think, for people concerned to get the Christian message right, and for people concerned with ongoing reformation in light of actual biblical teaching. To my evangelical fellows, I would say this. Don't be like the Mormons of 50 years ago, who are willing to dismiss these types of things as just obviously hostile attacks by outsiders. Be like the young Mormons of today, who are willing to dig into good scholarship, be it historical, theological, textual, philosophical. Dig in. All truth is God's truth. You have nothing to fear. If you're a Protestant and you've studied the history of Protestantism and Roman Catholicism, you know that mainstream Christianity has made plenty of mistakes. But she also shows a capability of sometimes correcting mistakes. Run after that information. Don't only listen to evangelical theologians, evangelical scholars, 
evangelical historians, evangelical philosophers, get both sides of the argument. And if you're relying on evangelical apologists for your information about biblical interpretation, you're not doing it right. If our Mormon friends had relied only on Mormon apologetics for their information about Mormon history, they would be up a creek. Go for the real scholars. Sometimes those are also apologists, but honestly, most apologists are not real scholars. The evangelical apologists are never going to tell you things like this. Here's a quotation from a leading New Testament scholar in a book published in 1982. He says, quote, No responsible New Testament scholar would claim that the doctrine of the Trinity was taught by Jesus or preached by the earliest Christians or consciously held by any writer in the New Testament. End quote. How can he be so bold? Hasn't he read evangelical apologetics? Who's right? Are the apologists right that the Trinity is just an obvious implication of what the New Testament says? So that they were just Trinitarians that didn't have the word Trinitarian or Trinity? Or is he right that Trinity theories are a later development? That the idea of a tripersonal God never entered the mind of any New Testament author? Don't only read one side. Find the real experts and test what they say by careful examination of the New Testament itself. The Christian doesn't need to be afraid that there are going to be some kind of Joseph Smith skeletons in the closet when it comes to people like Jesus, John, Peter, and Paul. And if you're a Mormon who's struggling with your belief, you really should compare Joseph Smith and Brigham Young to these biblical characters. Do they seem honest? Does what they teach about God fit with other things in the Bible and with what reason would reveal about the source of the world? Are their claims to divine revelation credible? Is there any reason to put them in the category of a cult leader, one of those countless people in human history, usually male, who are clearly in the religion game for power, sex, money? One last point when it comes to religion, lovers of truth should love history. Insofar as religious people, would-be prophets, gurus, etc., are making claims about what has actually happened, we need the discipline of history to weigh their claims. Where would we be without historians in the case of Mormonism? We'd just be looking at the book, hearing people giving testimony, and maybe still wondering. I'm not wondering. Sometimes historical investigation pretty well rules out certain claims. This week's thinking music has been Molten Snow by Jesse Spillane. Next week, my interview with the author of an important recent book, If you enjoyed this episode of the Trinity's podcast, don't forget to share on social media such as Twitter, Pinterest, and Facebook. And if you've never done so, why not leave us a brief rating and review in the iTunes store for your country? Thanks for listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.